Welcome everyone to the very first Business Secret Podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Frank Holmes as our inaugural guest. For those of you who don't know who Frank is, he's a founding partner of Gambit, one of Wales's leading corporate finance specialists. Frank's a dealmaker and has been voted dealmaker of the year on three separate occasions. He's the chairman of the Regional Economic Growth Partnership Board, a governor of Cardiff Met University, chair of the board at Bobath, and is recognised as a leader of one, if not the most active corporate finance practices in Wales over the past decade. He has coached and mentored many business owners over the years and helped many improve their businesses and prepare for an exit. And most importantly, he wrote the forward for our book, The Business Secret. Welcome, Frank. Good afternoon. Okay, Frank, so tell us a little bit more about you and Gambit. Well, Gambit is, is a 29-year-old firm uh, this year. It was founded um, in, in Cardiff Bay, and where it still resides, having gone around the, the city over a couple of uh, iterations. Um, it's had a fantastic uh, journey. We've managed to uh, undertake some of the sort of leading transactions in the Principality and beyond. We've done a lot of work internationally as well. It's a people business, and therefore uh, it relies very heavily on the quality of, and calibre of, of, of the individuals in the team. The, the business is probably one of the worst business models I know. It, it relies purely on tenacity and success because of the way in which we generate our income, most of which is successfully led. But on the other hand, it's stood the test of time. I'm not saying it's, it's immortal by any stretch of the imagination. No business is. But on the other hand, it's still here and it's still doing very well. Ah, oh, fantastic. Just quickly, you mentioned there about model and success fees. So if you had your time again, would you change anything? Unfortunately, I, if I could, I would. Um, I'm, I'm always fascinated by business models and you know, some, of the, some business models are far more robust than others, particularly when you start to look at the razor blade and the moat and these other names that are known for, for different styles of income uh, generation. But this is the, the nature of the, the industry and clients you know, tend to want a success fee based outcome. And in some respects, it's the ultimate judgment that you select or you get yourself appointed to do a particular transaction on the basis that you believe in it and that you can deliver it. And so I think that they go hand in hand really with the, the nature of the work and the nature of the billing. So how did you end up here then? I started life um, in, in South Wales at university. I was a surfer, um, which I am not currently anymore, but that's a shame. Um, and uh, having taken a couple of years off surfing around South America, my father got very annoyed and asked me to go and do something with the rest of my life. So. Um, I chose to do oceanography and in the UK there was only um, Southampton and Swansea that did the degree and lo and behold the Southampton, the, sorry the Swansea uh, prospectus had a surfer in, in, within it. So I made that my decision, came to Wales where the water was absolutely freezing, <laughs> it rained all the time and you had to wear a wetsuit which was a complete new world to me. Nonetheless, um, towards the end of my degree um, I had an opportunity to go for interviews with Deloitte and um, others and in fact at the same time I was offered the opportunity to do research and stay at the university and get a PhD which my wife was um, and my girlfriend then was, was already embarking on. So my tutor in utter amazement but also very wise said well Frank why don't you choose between these two things. Stay here and use our wonderful oceanographic vessel or take that job with Deloitte and buy your own boat. And so that led me into Deloitte and I joined uh, the profession, 
qualified as a chartered accountant. Went into industry at a time when partnership wasn't available, even though I was on a fast track and um, decided to uh, take up a job in industry. I went in as a finance director of a well-known engineering business owned by a quoted company and um, subsequently became managing director, I think it was about six, seven months later, and ran the business for a few years. It was a business that needed a, a huge turnaround. It was stuck in the, the depths of the old Ministry of Defence cost plus era. Um, led that and then we suddenly became non-core, less interesting to the holding company that was Aerospace Engineering PLC, fully listed. And I took uh, upon myself to go, having spoken to a couple of colleagues, and put the idea of a management buyout to them. Um, knowing that if they rejected it, I was going home um, very swiftly. Anyhow, long story short, we raised the money with three eyes, Barclays Bank, Welsh Government, and bought the business in 92. Um, and I ended up selling it in 96, in between which um, I started uh, the, the Gambit journey. Um, despite leaving Deloitte's um, in 1989, um, they retained me into 2004 on a fantastic consultancy, which uh, involved um, running around South America, namely uh, Brazil, Uruguay and Argentina, and recovering monies in Europe as well that had been effectively embezzled from an Italian bank. And some of you will remember the uh, famous uh, God's Banker who was found hanging under Blackfriars Bridge. Um, so I was one of the chief negotiators in recovering hundreds of millions of dollars from some very colorful individuals. So how did you acquire the skills to be able to do that at such a young age? Um, I guess you just, you know, one of the things that um, makes or breaks you is being thrown in at the deep end. And uh, when I look back on, on my career, I've been thrown in the deep end a lot, but I've also thrown myself in the deep end. And you, that's when you learn to sink or swim. And when you start to think about mentors, quite often it's mentors that throw you in uh, at the very deep end because they have some confidence in your ability to get out. But it's like everything else. You learn on the job, you, know, you put the effort in, you try to be a little bit creative. Um, I, am, I am slightly dyslexic, which I, I see as a gift. Um, sometimes I see things very differently from other people, um, which sometimes helps to sort of find a solution that maybe isn't quite obvious to others. As you remember, we talk a lot in the book about people having mentors for business. We both had mentors supporting us from start from the start, I believe. And I would suggest that you're still a mentor to a lot of young business owners, helping them out with their business strategies and how they're potentially going to exit their businesses. So do you yourself still have a mentor? Um, not, not as such that I could probably name, but there are people who I really admire and um, enjoy listening to and enjoy asking questions of and enjoy bouncing things off. Absolutely. I think you know, life is a journey where there will always be people that you can learn off. There will always be people who are cleverer, more capable, more experienced than yourself. And you know, you should embrace that and make the most of it. So when you started Gambit, did you have someone to use then? Not at all, no. I, I, that was a pretty lonely time, I guess. Um, but it was equally lonely for the, the, the other partner that I started with. Um, and that was one of the reasons that we felt that sharing the, um, the loneliness was better with two than one. So, um, uh, but we were, you know, in, in this business, you're, you're, you tend to be a sort of maverick. You tend to be a, um, uh, re reasonably self-assured. But such is the model that actually you need somebody else to lean on. If your things aren't going to plan, then hopefully theirs is and vice versa. So that's how partnership works in this business. Um, you know, I, I question the whole concept of partnership uh, um, from time to time, particularly the larger ones where actually you're just a glorified manager, but this is a true partnership. 
Ah, oh, fantastic. I would suggest you probably take many risks during your years in business. What's the biggest risks or the ones that stand out to you? Um, I guess one of the biggest risks was actually um, stepping outside of my engineering business to, to, to start Gambit. Um, because there I was, having been out of the profession for roughly six years, deciding to go back in to the profession where it's a completely different um, set of circumstances. You know, when you're in a, in a, in a manufacturing business, for example, you know, your, your whole focus is on a pretty limited uh, number of customers, not different from a limited number of clients, but actually the, the way you have to generate income in a professional context is, is, is much wider networking. Um, so you're not just looking for, for clients, you're looking for uh, sources of funding, the banks, the private equity houses, you're looking for relationships with other professionals in tax um, or in, in, in the legal profession and so forth. So it's a, it's a very different dynamic and of course you don't build up a pipeline overnight and that's one of the reasons why this particular business is probably not um, facing too many competitors in the locality because it takes months and months to get transactions into the pipe and then it takes months and months to get them over the line so and during that whole journey believe me um, you're still paying the bills um, for all your staff your premises and everything else and if those deals don't come off you've got no income to look forward to either so it is it is a, a very different animal in you know sending out an invoice for what you've manufactured this month or the stage payment on a on a particularly large project or whatever so mm. you know, cash flow is is is, is, is somewhat uh, more more interesting so starting this up in 95 with no clients and minimal connections what was your first marketing strategy I decided to do what I knew best and I looked for opportunities as interim management I ended up running as it happened three factories uh, for two for overseas owners in manufacturing um, and again that's only something that you can only do so many of I mean how many factories can any one person run I think I was at my limit because I was also building a house um, and, and still doing the Deloitte work um, and still chairing my old my own business so it was quite a busy time with a very young family uh, but w by doing that I had an income I had the income from the uh, as I call it the mafia work I had the income from uh, these interim MD jobs with American uh, owners um, and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a Welsh company as well and um, used every time every moment I could to start looking for deal flow so when was the tipping point that you suddenly realized that you could just go away and just do the deal making? Uh, it took probably about nine months uh, uh, from joining. and uh, But of course, you, you, you can't just put your foot down and stop things. You, know, you have to have an orderly transition to, to extricate yourself from certain circumstances. But that's, that's what we did. But that being said, the Ambrosiano or the banking work carried on for another nine years. So right. that was an income that I brought into the firm and that helped pay my way in, in the practice. So to go from zero to nine months, getting leads within those nine months, it seems very good. Again, what marketing would you have used? I was leveraging off uh, existing relationships with banks um, through my, my, my um, business, um, but also uh, reaching into, into the professional community. I still had a lot of friends in the accountancy world. Um, I still had um, you know, quite a few number of your personal contacts and you know believe it or not you, you know, sometimes you can even pick up you know a deal in a pub so um, you know all of those things as long as it's all about being attentive really at the end of the day and being you know open to uh, signals or open to 
suggestions and just pursuing those and um, that's what we did. So let's just be clear, Frank Holmes is now promoting going out for a drink in order to generate business. There's many a time I've picked up a, and there's, you know what, you might forget what you were doing that night, but the one thing I never forget is a deal. So do you have any other marketing tips? The pub mentality isn't really what it used to be nowadays with coffee shops popping up all over the place. So I was just wondering if you've got any other tips outside of that for startups and early day businesses. Um, for me, I guess the best, I, I'm not a big fan of um, pitching up as one of three in a competition because more often than not, the decision's been made and one of or two of you are being used for benchmarking and for pricing and so mm. forth. So for, for me, the, the best way to do business is, is to be introduced um, by a trusted uh, intermediary who has the ear of the client um, because you're going in with a warm welcome rather than a cold stone face and what's he going to say? We're really not here to, you know, that interested because we've already made our mind up but mm. we're just trying to do the process. So. I think uh, a lot of time can be can be wasted doing that. I've actually had, uh, in two occasions that I can remember, one that was run by Three Eyes and one that was run by uh, a well-known company locally, where on both occasions um, my pitch was contrary to what they wanted to say they or hear, and that was that they were both looking to sound. I told both on both occasions that it wasn't the right time and that they would probably suffer, suffer or, or not be successful. Um, so they asked me in both cases why was I in the room and I said well you invited me so I thought I'd come along and tell you uh, what I thought not necessarily what you wanted to hear because I don't do that um, so literally in both cases uh, in, in one in particular almost a year to the day um, both pitched up again and said you were right we didn't achieve it can you act for us now and help us get to where we want to get to so right. you know lesson there as well is don't tell people what they want to hear because it's, it's a complete waste of time for you and them so that being said, what do you think your greatest failure is so far? Something that maybe hasn't worked as well as you wanted it to. Okay, so maybe not a failure, but something that hasn't worked, something that you would have done differently now you're looking back. Well, failure is a good word because we all have it. It's uh, something that, you know, you can bury in the depths of your mind or you can actually, from time to time, ref reflect on, not maybe too, too long, um, just to make sure you don't make that mistake again. So for me, it was um, having got the factory in Cardiff um, and being at that whippersnapper age of you know invincibility, decided to create a whole new business in North Wales, um, in the same sector of aerospace and defence, but this time instead of using metal, using carbon, carbon composite materials. So, uh, I guess persuaded and uh, enchanted about the idea of doing that type of work for the likes of Raytheon, British Aerospace, and uh, some of the MOD companies. Um, set up this factory, funded it, raised a bit of money, used our own money from Cardiff, um, and then the customers didn't turn up. And basically what had happened in the interim, they had uh, suffered a downturn in their business and decided to take it in-house rather than put it out into you know, the subcontract market. So I guess the lesson there is um, you know, do your due diligence extensively, keep in touch with your customer, um, and, and make sure that at the most important thing is make sure that if it has gone wrong and you can't really see light at the end of the tunnel, don't let it drag on. So we had to cut our losses, we had to close the factory. If I had let it go on, and I let it go on too long, that was my, that was my mistake. Because um, the longer you leave these things go on, the more they suck cash out of your business. But thankfully we cut it in time, uh, ashamedly I agree. Um, but we saved the business in Cardiff from being dragged down by a mm -hmm. startup in 
and in North Wales. And startups are, you know, by very very nature, very precarious uh, um, projects, very precarious uh, situations. Um, so the big message there is, you know, um, be very very good on your due diligence. Get close to your customer. Make sure that they're going to be there when you're ready to go. In chapter seven of the book, we talk a lot about recruiting the right people for your business. You've obviously recruited well in your own business along along throughout your journey, and can see others recruiting in different positions. So, what's your usual process when it comes to recruitment? Um, well, in the good old days, when there were many, you know, there were more sort of corporate finance experienced people in the market, we used to just, just go out and steal them. That was probably our best tactic, um, either through an intermediary or direct or indirectly through others. Um, that has changed significantly. So, if you think about the downturn in two thousand and eight and the, the crash that we all went through, um, that probably exterminated a lot of um, ongoing recruitment and indeed um, corporate finance expertise in the market. So it, it, it certainly is very scant at the moment, but you know, I, uh, from talking to clients across many sectors, you know, finding good quality, skilled, experienced people is difficult for everybody. That being said, what we've decided to do about three years ago um, was to create our own uh, internal sort of system of attracting graduates and at the in so the low uh, so at the incoming level of, as analysts and training them putting through professional qualifications and then allowing them to join the deal teams and progress to the firm and we've got a couple of outstanding uh, young uh, guys who are now on a very solid trajectory in the firm so it, to ask to answer your question, you know, we, we don't always get it right. There will be some there will be some fallout along the way, but um, thus far it's it's looking good. We've got a, another couple of people joining us next month. Well, I guess what I always look at in the context of who we recruit is is that person got the potential to be a partner in this business? Do I think that person could go the distance and be a partner? Because that's those are the people I want. You know, to take the firm forward and, and be here you know, thereafter. Have you got any particular questioning techniques that you like to use or tools that you have in your arsenal when it comes to sort of interviewing people? So for instance, if you had 10 people sat in front of you who are looking for the same job, is there anything you do in particular or is it more on a gut feel basis? There's a lot of gut feel, as, as we all know. You know. The day you think your gut isn't working, then that's the day to start doing something else. And um, I think... Um, it is instinctive. You can generally tell when you've been doing it a long time that you know whether people have come. They're well prepared. They've asked the right questions. They seem to have, you know, be able to to answer the, your questions. You do put some low ballers in there. I, I know we we have been guilty of almost intimidating people by the sort of uh, questions. This is, you know, I, I don't say this proudly, but our business isn't considered to be a sort of wallflower. You know, we are quite a, a I guess, a, a, an intensive group of people. We are deal junkies through and through. Uh, we love the chase, we love the win, um, and that maybe puts us a little bit outside of the sort of normal, sort of mm-hmm. nice office environment. Um, our gender balance, by the way, is absolutely terrible um, because it's very male-dominated. That being said, um, Delighted, we'll be announcing that we've got a, another lady joining the firm that'll make two, which means we've doubled the headcount. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, um, you know, it's, it's difficult. You know, we, we would love to be far more, more balanced in that context, and um, 
but um, yeah, there's a lot of testosterone in this office, so it'd be good to see if we can dilute that a bit. The agenda's irrelevant in my view. I say that, uh, you know, I'd say that in any, in any context. You mentioned earlier about juggling a few balls and that having a young family and running factories can be quite difficult. In Chapter 5 of the book, we talk about work-life balance and how it can be very important to make sure that you not only have your business assets and everything working well for you, but also you still have time for your family. So over the years, what have you learned about work-life balance? Yeah, well, it, 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 it's always been bad, but I guess when you're self-employed, you know, it's very difficult to separate business and, and, and personal life. Some people are much better at it than others. I haven't got that discipline, I'm afraid. It's, I, I, it's just the way... It, you know, my wife will tell you that clients come first, um, and I, I, it's not something I'm proud of, but it's something that evolves um, in this business uh, of corporate finance. You, know, you tend to be acting in, on, on a particular phase of somebody's career or life in, in something they've built, which is very precious to them, particularly for selling, and therefore they just, you know, for them it's the most important thing that they've done in their life cycle of, of business. And therefore, they expect um, you to be available 24/7, and we do have 24/7 you know, clients. The the other thing, of course, is is that the key and the secret is to make them think that they're the only deal that you're doing at the same time, uh, and that's quite a juggling act, if mm. you like. You know, that this, there's no other deal going on. And in fact, certainly the partners here, most of us are working on six, seven, eight deals at any one time. Yeah. If you had a time ago, do you think you'd do anything differently when it came to looking after yourself? It would have to have been in a very different business. And um, I guess to wind the clock back and do something different, I've never really given that much thought, but I guess I've really enjoyed this career. I've really enjoyed the diversity, the different types of clients, the different types of businesses, size, scale, you know, jurisdiction, um, successes, the 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 sort of highs and lows um, and the camaraderie of having good partners um, you know and um, no I personally I like the, the independence of being self-employed as well that I, I, I cherish but that comes at a price and that's where the work-life balance does probably take a bit of suffering but um, as, as you know because you were there um, the R word doesn't exist in my vocabulary I came up at lunch today um, I'm, retirement is not on the agenda so I'm getting the impression that you really do love what you do. You always seem to be on it, but really enjoying yourself. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's an adrenaline thrill at times. It's a, you know, I'd hate to think what would happen if you stepped off the conveyor belt, um, and you do hear stories of that. So, um, no, I think um, you know, being carried out as a boy, the boys joke here, carried out here in a box is probably the right way. To <laughs> We like to talk a lot in our book and business about business owners planning for the future. We try our best not to talk about the R word, but instead decide to use financial freedom as the term. So people are often working out of choice rather than necessity. Obviously, you facilitate a lot of people helping sell their businesses for quite large sums of money. We won't talk about your exit plan in particular because it doesn't sound like there is much of one. But what do you find when it comes to business owners after they've sold? Do they stay away? Do they come back? What's What usually happens to them? Do they decide that... Once they've sold their business, they're done, or do they look to try and come back for more? It depends normally on how old they are at the time. So you you will find serial entrepreneurs who will be of an age, and actually that's probably that's probably not quite right because I just thought of something that, that I I teach and I praise people I, I praise people of. So 
Um, as for starting up again, the trouble is it can go from one extreme where they think that they've been so successful in, I don't know, selling clothes in a big retail business that whatever they touch will be Midas and actually whatever they touch thereafter goes south. And that's primarily because they haven't really put the le level of effort into really getting underneath the business model they're investing in. And also the fact that the world has changed since they started that business and the business they've just come out of was probably the right time to get out of anyhow. So, so sometimes you'll see frustration of people who decide to go back in and actually don't make it again. And I've seen people waste a lot of their money trying to do that. Um, there are absolute geniuses who you know, will come out of one business and start something up completely different, but they're taking some very good lessons, some very good disciplines into the next era, and I've seen that work. Um, and I've also seen uh, people doing it at all ages. Um, one of my, my favorite stories on succession planning is to, when we talk to banks and that about addressing it with their customers, which I believe is their responsibility, is never to assume that because somebody is 70 years of age that they've decided to hang up their boots. I phoned up two clients who we sold for over 30 million um, within 10 days of that transaction about to say, well, uh, Trevor, how are you feeling? Are you, what are you gonna plan to do with your life? Because now we, I'm a bit older and more uh, understanding. I talk about life after, life after the exit, mm -hmm. what are you gonna do before the exit? But in this case, I nearly said to Trevor, Trevor, you know, I guess you're gonna hang up your boots. Thank God I didn't, because he turned around and said, oh, me and Roy have just started another business. <laughs> They're now in their 80s and they're plowing on again. This will be their third time and they'll make a pile of money doing that at this time as well. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, we have a lot of these conversations with um, our clients when it comes to them finishing that job or selling their business. We're finding less and less people are now looking to ride off into the sunset and cruise around the world. And instead, people are asking themselves what they want to do next, whether that's work for charity, start a new business. So that, that's a very good point. I mean, you know, sharing your experience in different ways with different uh, organizations is a, is a very fulfilling thing to do. So in that context, one of the reasons I sit on the board of Bobath have been on there for 15 years is is to add some give some time back because I think time is more valuable than writing a check but also to keep an eye on their their financial uh, position because charities are even worse models than gambit um, they are really they are really only sustained by the goodwill of, of the donors mm. um, and there are plenty of charities out there and everyone's fighting for the same pound notes so I think if you can give back in that way, if you can give back in education, you know, and help um, schools become slightly more business-like, commercialize themselves, universities are the same, um, then I think that's a nice, fulfilling way to give back. It doesn't always need to be compensated in a monetary context. You can be compensated in a very, very self-fulfilling way without actually receiving, you know, um, an income. So you've seen a lot of businesses, sectors, and run a few of your own businesses yourself. If you were starting again, straight from the off, starting completely from scratch, what would you do with recruitment, marketing, cash flow, and what would your top three tips be for yourself if you were starting all over again? I think there's, there's a number of things. So, um, if we start at, start with 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 the mindset of going into anything, I think that's a mindset of, of, of thorough preparation in everything that you do. So, good quality analysis, investigation. Um, and we're now in an area where, where information is so accessible that you can help. 
yourself in that respect. I think the other thing is never to compromise on quality in whatever you do. Quality is king, and that's you know this business is is all about quality and reputation, and we're only as good as the last deal. So if you go into it in that sense, then um, do do always um, think about some of the key key dynamics of um, return on investment. So when you decide to invest in an initiative and a marketing. Uh, program or in a, in a you know in, in new equipment or technology or even you know spending a day playing golf ask yourself where's the, the, the ROI on this activity on this investment on this I think I think that's a really good discipline and the other one um, which which is which is I've always found useful I mentioned it in your book and that is that when you have any doubts about or you're thinking about doing something and you're trying to challenge yourself as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I always come back around to, to the point where I ask myself, if a client was asking you about this, what would you tell them to do? It's a very easy and powerful way of getting yourself back on track if you're starting to sort of meander a bit. If, if we sometimes, as, as a partnership, um, one of us might want to go off and do some particular investment, if you like, in a particular uh, opportunity a particular uh, or, or structure a fee in a particular way um, and we bring ourselves back to ground by saying is that what you advise a client to do okay and it's very powerful it's when you reflect and you say oh maybe not maybe I'd are doing it slightly differently or I won't do it at all so so that that's a very powerful and I guess the the old mantra as well um, in terms of um, really understand your business model that is one of the business plans are just creative writing you know we can all write business plans but actually getting under the model and understanding what it is you're out to do and where are you solving the problem for the end customer so that there is a link between the customer and the business model that you're pursuing that is fundamental um, and then I guess um, if you if you're getting through if you get through all of that just remember the one and the one thing that really counts is that cash is king. You know, turnover is, and you know, the old saying is, is vanity. You know, cash is sanity. So, I want to stick to that. So, just to bring this to an end, Frank, I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you in a second. But before that, what does the future look like for Gambit, and what do you want it to look like? Well, we're we're at a very interesting time. So you've got um, I'm still here. Clearly, I've got Garant who. Uh, is, is another M&A uh, specialist who joined the firm 15 years ago and has been a partner for, for at least 12 of those um, and if not more um, and I brought him in from KPMG uh, he's, he's, he's an outstanding uh, uh, operator uh, got some, and is having a very good time and I'd be amazed if he doesn't get deal maker this year um, and then we've got uh, Jason who, who brings a whole new uh, debt advisory service so we'll see that as counter-cyclical when private equity starts to retrench because they're paying too much for their investments and um, there aren't enough around. Uh, the world will revert to debt funding and, and we're seeing that already in certain sectors. So he's a, uh, an ex-banker, ex-PwC, he's got a big uh, network. Um, he's been a corporate banker for many years, HSBC, Lloyd's, etc. So that's a really exciting place for us and I can see that debt uh, advisory extending beyond private sector into the public sector because the public sector now is going to need to avail itself of funding from the private sector so we could be that bridge and then we've got Jamie who is um, a successful 
private equity uh, uh, player. He has worked for Three Eyes, Beringia, NatWest Capital. He brings a whole new dynamic in terms of some more uh, more interesting, very sizable transactions where I'm hoping that we will be able to uh, take some, some equity participation as well. So, so in terms of the future, those three who are much younger than me in their own right um, have, a, have a whole new uh, era to look forward to. Uh, we're covering the bases in terms of M&A, debt and private equity. Uh, and then behind that are coming some some uh, two or three really good individuals who I think you know between them they'll will certainly one or two of them will get to the to the partnership. So you know there is a pretty good um, uh, lineage if you like in, in, for the firm and as a people business that's all we've got. I think I think uh, without question I think I think we're all very different. We 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 um, perform differently. We we have different personal skills. We have certainly in terms of capability they're all there. Um, they just may do things differently and that's that's what makes the world go round, isn't it? Okay, so a couple of quick fire questions just so the listeners can get to know a little bit more about Frank Holmes the individual rather than Frank Holmes the business owner. So what books are you currently reading? Um, Capitalism Without Capital. It's, it's just all about this whole new era that we're going into where balance sheets are going to have to display intellectual property, which banks and, and, and in, in, you know, in traditional funders haven't really got their heads around. They can understand a building, they can understand a piece of equipment, they can understand a debtor book, but actually they don't understand how to collateralize uh, patents, know-how, and so forth. And if you think about you know, the, the world of tomorrow and artificial intelligence and so forth, you know, there are gonna be a lot of virtual businesses out there with virtual balance sheets, but they're gonna need funding. And so it's a very interesting uh, transition I think we're going through where the, the, the funders are going to have to get their heads around actually funding things which are less tangible. They're known as intangibles in our sort of bean counting world. Well, I certainly enjoyed the last book you recommended to me, but the name currently escapes me. It was, it was about what you believe to be true. It really was a fantastic read. I would recommend that book to anybody, and I'll make sure I put the name of it in the notes uh, for the listeners to go and find that themselves. So to a business owner sitting here, hopefully you've picked up some tips of what the best books are to read. Warren Buffett and his essays. So if you were to ask me who is my, you know, who do I actually... Oh, I was going to, but go on. You know, in a lifetime they've built 700 billion under management, 100 billion of it in cash. And, you know, in Warren's latest article, which I read a few weeks ago, he says he's the happiest 88-year-old in the world. Um, it's not because he's got all the money, it's just because he's had so much fun. Yes, absolutely. So what music are you listening to? Despite my uh, my grey hair, I, I'm a big fan of uh, House Nation, so I, wow. I, I, I I love House Nation. But I still I still have on my car uh, the Rolling Stones live in Cuba, which is where I was born. And it's a fantastic uh, uh, live. I like live concert music, uh, so I've got I've got them on there and um, and uh, one or two others that are probably hop back to the days of the Doors and so forth. So I'm a little bit. Um, you know, stuck in that uh, yeah. era, but uh, on on the more forward looking, I, I do like house music, so I have that because it's constantly changing. So, given that this is the podcast, are there any other podcasts that you're listening to at the moment, or that you would recommend for our listeners? TED, because of the variety, and they do give you some inspirational ideas. What about box sets or TV shows? Are there any that are an absolute must for you? The one I, the one I guess I, I I shouldn't admit to. I I love Narcos because 
it, 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 it's all about the drug industry around South America where I was brought up and I mm -hmm. can relate to some of it, not taking drugs or, or, or trafficking them either, but I can, it, it tends to have a lot of Spanish in it, which I speak fluently. Um, the, the, the other one that I probably enjoyed is Peaky Blinders and it's yeah, very interesting. Well, thanks to Frank for giving up his time for our listeners. I've got some key points of the conversation that I'm just going to go out and see if you still think that's all right. So we've got a bet on Geraint to become dealmaker of the year. Whatever you do, go in with the right mindset. Work your network and look for in people you can be introduced to. Whatever you do, do your due diligence. And make sure whatever you produce is absolute top quality. And make sure that you don't stay in something too long if you don't think it's working for you. How does that sound, Frank? It's a fair, uh, fair uh, summing up. It's been a pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's, uh, it's almost, um, how would you say, uh, catharsic. A bit of therapy. Good. Well, I hope you feel better for it. And thanks for chatting today.